Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Does the RH negative blood type make you a prime candidate for alien abduction? Does abduction run in families? What is the missing time phenomenon all about? Hello and welcome to the 871st edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Uh, coming to you live from WOON. 1240 AM and 99.5 FM here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live and TuneIn.com. I'm Ben, and those chilling questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures, and Paul, uh, and Paul, and Dad, Paul. Just call me Dad. Ooh, just call <laughs> you can just call me Dad for short. Yeah. Um, today we bring you uh, an old friend, uh, actually a couple old friends, on a new subject, and if you'd like to join us on the show, you can call us, 401-766-1240, that's from anywhere, uh, or you can email paulbehindtheparanormal.com or get to us via various social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Mike Stevens is an experienced paranormal researcher, especially in the UFO field. He was the initiating force behind the New Hampshire historical marker for Betty and Barney Hill's 1961 UFO encounter. Mike also was a key figure in organizing the annual Exeter UFO Festival, where he is also a speaker who appears as a panelist on the annual live shows we broadcast from there. The founder of Granite Sky Services, Mike is a UFO abduction experiencer since the age of three who helps others deal with their experiences. On a personal note, uh, Ben and I have known Mike for many years, and he's always giving of himself for others. Mike is a New Hampshire born and bred. Uh, his website, granitesky.org. Nomar Slevik is author of the new book about Mike's experiences, Granite Skies, A Disconcerted Journey Through the Unknown. Nomar is a uh, prominent paranormal researcher, uh, an author based in Maine, uh, New Hampshire and Maine. That's where men live, New Hampshire and Maine, where men live. Uh, His own fascination, while all things paranormal, uh, began with his own UFO experience at the age of four. This is his second appearance on the show. Uh, Nomar, you're all over the Internet. Uh, What website would you direct people to? I think the best website is allmylinks.com slash Slevic. Okay. Fair enough. So, Mike Stevens and Nomar Slevic, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. So, Mike, we've been friends for a long time, uh, years, geez, um, but somehow we've never had a chance to really discuss your personal story. I know, I know it's a, it's kind of a big deal, so, you know, we don't like to, like to press, but, uh, can you just start at the beginning, um, and take as much time as you need? I know it's, I know it's, it's, it's a tough one. Um, yeah, so, there's some indication that it might have started, uh, even at infancy, and that kind of, came out later as we looked into all this stuff, but uh, the first time I really remember anything like this happening, I was um, about three, three and a half, and we're at my grandmother's house in Southampton, New Hampshire. Um, There's some type of family function going on. I don't know exactly what, but everybody was there, extended family, aunts, uncles, cousins, that sort of thing. Um, And the way my grandmother's house was set up, um, the dining room, you walked in the front door through the kitchen and then there was a dining room that you had to kind of go through to get to anywhere else in the house and off that dining room uh there was like a three-season porch that overlooked the backyard so i walked through the kitchen past this dining room area and as soon as i got there there was this um 
like intense internal calling or need to get outside. Um, I don't remember how I got outside or going outside, um, but I found myself standing in the driveway. And then my cousin, who's only a couple of months older than I, um, was standing out there with me. Um, you know, and that's the first part of the weirdness, how either of us got outside with nobody noticing or, you know, letting us. Um, but anyways, we're both standing in the driveway. Uh, we don't know why or what's going on. And the next thing we know, um, the woods behind my grandmother's house, there was this glow from behind the trees. It kind of like backlit the trees. All you could see was, you know, the silhouettes of the trees in this like glowing red um, light from behind the trees. Eventually, um, as this light kind of moved up above the tree line and broke, um, the, that's the first time we saw um, the, this craft or object. Um, and then it kind of floated from its position behind the tree line and parked itself next to a big tree my grandmother had at the end of her driveway. Um, so the object looked pretty much like what I would say your classic, you know, saucer shape, you know, domed top, domed bottom. Uh, it's probably like 40 feet wide, maybe 20 feet in height. Um, and it just kind of parked there. And what we noticed at first was just, like a row of lights around the, um, like what I would call uh, the center bar of the object. And they were, it didn't seem like individual bulbs like we would have on a sign or something. It was more, it looked more like fluid. And it was a lot of softer lights. And it, like, had a pattern of, you know, whites and things like that that it would repeat. And as we were watching that, um, all of a sudden, the bar lights, um, it changed in intensity and colors, a lot more oranges and reds. Um, and when that happened, almost like when you open your car door at night, some type of interior light came on in this object. And when that happened, you could see a row of windows above that center bar. Um, we couldn't like make any details out or anything, but we could see silhouettes of you know, like humanoid figures, shoulders and heads type thing. Um, at that point, there was a really um, just intense feeling of being, you know, watched. And um, then there was a standing uh, blank in my memory. Um, the next thing I remember, we this object was at the other end of the driveway by the street. It kind of hovered there for a second above the telephone pole and then it shot off up into the sky into like just a dot in seconds and that was kind of where this all started for me okay uh <clears throat> nomar um it's great to have you back on the show uh can Thank you tell you. us how you came to know mike and how you came to decide to write the book uh, sure. Uh, Mike and I became acquainted uh, through the former KRI Center for Consciousness Studies. Mm -hmm. That was an area or a place where uh, people from all walks of life uh, would meet uh, to discuss and, and, and share, you know, circles, for lack of a better term, uh, 
uh, about various aspects of the paranormal from empathic abilities uh, all the way to extraterrestrial and uh, also that center is known to have speakers come in once in a while and uh, I was lucky enough to to come in a few different times and Mike was instrumental on uh, getting me in there and once we finally got together Mike is very um enigmatic and it's very low-key as well it's interesting he's very uh, soft-spoken but well-spoken and when he speaks you listen to what he's saying and through meeting some of the other people there like andy and valerie lafaso and a few other folks I started getting bits and pieces of Mike's own story, but it was just, it was even less than what he told us just now, but it was certainly interesting, uh, to say the least. On one particular visit to the KRI Center, Mike showed me this really interesting photo of this beam of light that was captured at a cabin in New Hampshire, and it was a beam of light coming down from the sky, and it was caught on trail camera. He also has uh, some other pictures from that same trail camera at that same time uh, that show no beam of light. And uh, very fascinating, very interesting. So from there, Mike and I started speaking uh, in a more friendly and, and personal manner, meaning we would text each other or Facebook message. And then we started talking on the phone. And I would say about two and a half years ago now, we had a very long phone call. I mean, it was two plus hours from what I remember. And it went by, in my opinion, in a blink of an eye. But Mike kind of laid out his story in full. It wasn't the full scope with every minute detail like is in the book. But it was enough where I had... The, the bright idea to be like, hey man, I, you know, have you thought about doing a book with this? And, uh, cause I, I think I would be really interested in writing this book. Now, when I said that to him, I was also in the throes of another really big project. So I knew it was something I couldn't get to right away, uh, but I wanted to put that bug in his ear. And he was open to it. I think there were some attempts in his own uh, uh, personal world where, uh, you know, he had written some stuff down. Maybe had talked to Valerie about writing some stuff down. Uh, but him and I, during this conversation, I think we 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 felt this kinship that this might be able to to work out my voice and uh, his story and and how it could uh, mold together. Its actual fruition took quite a while, though. We actually didn't put, uh, you know, pen to paper for probably two years after that conversation. But that that was the the catalyst of uh, when we started discussing the book. Okay, and as I said um, off the air uh, to you fellows, the uh, I enjoy the way the book is written. It's it, it's got a lot of dialogue. I feel like I'm kind of by your side, Nomar, as as you're yeah. learning the, the story of Mike, and uh, it's just it's uh, I, re- I really enjoy. It. It's very unusual. <coughs> I, I, I appreciate I appreciate <clears throat> that coming from a book yeah. editor. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I really appreciate that because when Mike and I uh, met to have formal long-form interviews specifically so I could take notes and record our conversations for the information of this book. Uh, it was it, it, it turned out to be much more intimate than both of us uh, either imagined. Uh, it was almost like we went through this 
trenches of war, and that's not to minimize war at all, because obviously that's not like that. But it, 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 there was just this brotherhood, like this 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 bond, like a deep rooted bond that happened between us. And and Mike and I aren't even like the best of friends. We certainly enjoy each other. I mean, I love the guy, but it's not like we talk every day. You know, we're not hanging out constantly. We're a state apart. You know, many hours apart. But there was this bond that was born through this this relationship of writing this book and i really it's not even like i wanted to convey it in the book it just appeared in the book and it was pretty powerful for both of us yeah now mike uh your experiences did not end with that initial one when you were three uh can you take us through a few others and and what did it all do to your life um you know at first didn't really know what to make of it. It wasn't until maybe like school age where you're starting to interact with uh, more people that you figure out this, you know, isn't happening to everybody. It's not just part of, you know, quote unquote normal life. Um, you know, so it, it had all these really, um, not strange effects, but early, early effects. Um, I mean, I'm still fairly quiet. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't talk to anybody outside the immediate family. I was a poster child um, for hiding behind my mother's leg. Um, we were really close with my grandmother, and I, like, I knew how to talk for, like, two years before I'd talk to her just because I was that um, sheltered in and closed off and just I really didn't want to talk to anybody um, and, you know, I had a fear of, uh, like, overhead streetlights. Uh, you know, we, it was fairly rural where we lived, and, you know, there weren't, like, tons of streetlights, so they'd kind of pop up on you here and there by surprise. And, like, I'd have to turn myself around in the car, because if I saw the light going, it was fine, but if I saw the light coming, it would, um, you know, freak me out. Um, so, you know, and then, so... Those type of things were kind of from the onset. Um, you know, I, whether it was related to the fear of speaking or just whatever, I would stutter. I had um, a speech impediment. I couldn't do like S's and TH's and, you know, so there was all that stuff. Like I just never wanted to talk. You know, I never thought I'd be in front of crowds or doing interviews or any of this stuff. Um, so yeah, that was kind of really the early onset effect. Um, but I, when it, so just to tell you another one, um, cause this was a bigger one. So it was probably about eight or nine. Um, we were living in the house right next door to my grandmother's house. Um, so like on the same side of the street, not across the street and so it was all, you know, I was surrounded in this environment where the things happened quite a bit. It wasn't like it, you know, took place somewhere else and I could really escape it. Um, but there was a period of, for like six months, where I was being visited, maybe not every day, but three or four times a week. Um, and it was usually, in the beginning, it was always full, um two males or what I perceived as males um, and a female and I'll get into that in a second 
So what would happen is these balls of light would come into the window, in through the window, um, and then once they got in the room, they would kind of evolve into um, almost like shadows, but more than just a dark shape. There's almost like a swirl of smoke or something. There was energy or movement within the shadow, um, and that's what I remembered visually. But they had um, personalities and traits that about them energetically that you could feel um and two seemed to be male um one was a female and on a couple of occasions there was a a small boy as well um the males would usually kind of be right up at the edge of the bed and i wasn't allowed off the bed for the most part and they were very much um more like teachers i guess of a way they they're very strict on the, you know, he's got to learn his lessons, he needs to learn this, da-da-da, type thing, where the female will kind of pace in the background and stuff a little bit more. She she seemed almost uh, motherly at times and wanted more, like, interaction, it seemed, and more personal interaction, not just the, the strict um, guidelines or, or uh, teaching atmosphere. Um so that that happened for about nine months, and on um, you know I don't, I don't really remember what any of those lessons were. Um, all I really remember is one time they let me sit on the floor with this uh, boy, and I asked him, and I don't think it was out loud. I think it was all um, just in my mind or telepathically or whatever. Um, I asked him. What it? What it? What is he? And this image of Rosie the robot from the um, Jetsons kind of like beamed in my head, and we both kind of started cracking up. And again, I don't think he laughed audibly, but there was just this emotion of laughter that came from him too. Um, and then on another occasion, the female approached the bed with um, like a little black box, and inside it was what looked to me like a an arrowhead but it was made out of like crystal or glass it was clear and she told me this is the key and whether that a physical key symbolic i i don't know um but the last time i saw them um and this i was up in the air and i was looking down at the back stairs which was like just two rickety stairs that went into a mud room and then my bedroom was behind that and I kind of turned my head to just see what was going on. And when I turned my head away from that vision of the stairs from above, um, I just saw blood um, on a white cloth. And as I kind of pulled my head back a little bit to look, um, I realized that this cloth was a robe or g- garment that uh, this female being was wearing and um the blood was from my nose and she was carrying me back towards the house i don't remember um how we physically got into the house um but once we're in the house um it was the female and the two males um and like i said they were kind of strict and 
militaristic in their precision, not necessarily aggression, of how things carried on in the other instances. Um, and in this, they're always a step ahead. You know, they always knew it was next, and they seemed really um, frazzled this time. They were, um, you know, kind of almost pacing. It almost seemed like they overstepped the line. Um, and to me, in my thought process, and it's only my thought process, um, I think there was some type of another abduction scenario going on, and they uh, got in the middle of it and pulled me out of it. And um, so I think they were kind of in trouble a little bit. But what happened this time, too, was I could actually physically um, see them. Um, and they did kind of have some of the gray, what we'd consider a gray alien archetype, you know, with the big black eyes. Um, but they were much lighter. They were whiter, maybe a hint of blue or purple tone to it, but, um, and very real, like smooth skin, almost porcelain, but not quite that, um, but it wasn't like, you know, pitted and malted like some of the other, um, things. But so, yeah, that was a whole other thing that happened. Okay. Uh, Mike, as we go, uh, we know this is an uncomfortable subject for anybody. Uh, don't feel you have to answer any of the questions that come up if you're not comfortable doing so. <clears throat> so, uh, we have a, uh, our listener Peter in Bogota, Colombia, who's kind of an honorary co-host because he sends in great questions almost every week. So, Ben. We have two for two here for Mike. So Peter writes to us, uh, Mike, on another recent show, uh, you are starting to describe your onboard UFO experience uh, recovered by hypnotic regression, uh, but your laptop battery died and you were cut off. Um, would you be able to share and complete uh, the, the complete story of your onboard experience? Um, yeah. It's so again, this was. Through regression, um, I just, you know, want to make that clear for the record, you know, because people feel how they feel about regression and whatever. So this was through regression. It wasn't like a standing memory. Um, so the regression was to fill in the blank of that um, missing memory in the middle of that first experience when I was about three. Um and there, it didn't bring out a lot of um, details so much, but it did some. Um, there was still a lot of fear involved with it. And um, so I don't remember, like, how we got into the craft, but I remember kind of starting in, like, some type of archway or doorway in it. Um and the first thing I saw was, I didn't see a head or, like, legs. I just kind of saw, like, torso area of this creature kind of walk by. And it was like this olive dra drab brownish color. Um, and it had this extra, like, almost chicken wing type appendage on its arm. Like, where our arm and wrist meets, there was almost another section of arm there and i re remember it looked too big for the space he was in and it was you know it was weird i i kind of had 
I felt bad for this thing um, in, during the regression because he looked just so hunched and crunched up. Um, and so I, that was all, that was kind of when I first got on. Um, then I couldn't really see a lot. I realized at some point that I was laying down. I couldn't feel anything under me, but so I don't know if I was on a table floating or how that worked. And there was a lot of commotion around me. There, I could send, I couldn't really see, um, or my brain wasn't letting me remember, you know, the physical uh, makeup of the beings around me. But I could sense them like around my head and by my shoulders. And there was a lot of commotion down towards my feet. And you know. It seemed like they were trying to make me comfortable. Um, this is when, during the regression, you know, it, we kind of figured out that this wasn't by accident, um, that there was a familiarity not only with them, but, like, this had happened before at a, a younger age. And... Um, the, so then the notice there's a lot of um, like commotion down by my feet a lot of bodies moving and this and that and it, I kind of got the impression that the ones up by my head and shoulders and stuff were more of a distraction at the moment um, because most of the commotion down at my feet was they were um, dealing with my cousin and at that point, I snapped out of the regression. So that was kind of what the regression brought out. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> well, we're right on time for our mid-show break. And you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM, 99.5 FM in New England's pretty Blackstone River Valley. And our guests today are uh, Nomar Slevic and Mike Stevens. So stick with us for more of this very dramatic story. Be right back. The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to The Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade, the finest in late night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnye.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON. And uh, that's 99.5 FM, 1240 AM. And let's get back to our fascinating conversation uh, with Mike Stevens and Nomar Slevic about uh, Mike's amazing uh, and rather, I suppose, terrible experiences uh, in the uh, UFO um, realm and... uh, I, I just uh, am wondering here, uh, I want to just get back to Nomar for just a second here. Nomar, you yourself have had some interesting experiences that we talked about when you were on the show last time. Uh, can we, why don't we just take a hiatus and kind of go into your experiences for a bit? I don't, I don't know if you have had experiences quite as dramatic as Mike has. Uh, in the way that Mike and a lot of other people are experiencers. 
Uh, I definitely have seen some strange things, you know, from ghosts to unexplained lights in the sky to even a creature, some unknown creature on the side of the road. Uh, but what's kind of interesting is that Mike and I share uh, a little bit of a similar beginnings in uh, age and seeing a- an anomaly in the sky. I was three or four years old. This was back in the early 80s. And I was living in Fort Kent, Maine at the time. And that's way at oh, the tip yeah. of Maine. Uh, you can like throw a rock and hit Canada. So um, re- real I- men live there. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> uh, and I used to actually get my haircuts uh, in-, in Canada. So that was that was interesting. But anyway. Uh, I had gone to sleep one night, and this loud clap of thunder, or this loud bang, really, woke me up. And I was pretty scared, and I remember that the where I used to live in Fort Kent was kind of scary. Um, there are some paranormal things that that would happen there. Um, I, I used to think I would hear growling coming from the hallway outside my bedroom. And when I would tell my mother about it, she told me it was just the cat purring, and I guess... You know, my three or four or five year old mind wanted to believe that at the time, but it it wasn't a cat purring. <laughs> um, but this one particular night, this loud bang wakes me up, and I'm trying to figure out what it is. So I'm kind of like looking around, and then I see the sky lighting up uh, outside my window, and I can hear like the spatter of rain hitting my window. So I was like, "Oh, a thunder and lightning storm!" So I kind of like sat up on my knees and was looking out the window, and I was watching the lightning and hearing thunder. And after a moment or so, there was this really obscene, really, uh, lightning bolt. Like, if I were to ask you to draw a lightning bolt, you'd draw this jagged yellow line, you know, this thick, jagged yellow line. And my three- or four-year-old mind saw this jagged thunderbolt uh, or lightning bolt stuck in a cloud. And there was electricity coming off of it, and there were booms. And even at that age, I knew that lightning was really quick. Like, it doesn't just stay in the sky like that. And I don't really know what happened after that. I guess I fell back asleep. I'm not really sure. I woke up the next morning, and uh, I had left my room. I was walking back into my room, and I could see out my window uh, walking into my room, and the lightning bolt was still there. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. So I ran downstairs to get my dad to show him, brought him all the way upstairs. And by the time we got there, it was gone. So I was trying to explain to him that there was a lightning bolt stuck in the sky. And it had been there since last night. And and he was doing, you know, the the, the father thing to a young child. Like, yeah, 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 you know, thanks for telling me. And But I must have been, like, really insistent because he kind of had to, like, stop, like, put his hands on my shoulders, get down on my level and was like, Hey, it, it didn't even rain last night. Like, I think maybe it was just a dream. I don't know what you saw, but there, it, there was not even any storm last night. So that, that's when I kind of got scared. Cause I knew it wasn't a dream. So I wasn't sure if I was seeing things. I, I didn't really know how to process it. So fast forward two weeks and I'm being woken up in the middle of the night by my mother. And she has my sister and I downstairs, and she's getting us both dressed up in our winter gear, you know, jackets and boots and all that stuff, because uh, the northern lights are out and viewable, apparently. And so my dad kind of scoops me up and takes me outside, and I look at the sky, and there are these, you know, beautiful ribbons of light in the sky. And and, and to me, that was just a similar or, you know, uh, pretty much kind of the same thing that I saw two weeks earlier, just something weird happening in the sky. So I guess what happened at that young age is that 
it was kind of uh, embedded in my brain that weird, amazing things happen in the sky and I should probably look up and pay attention. And that's just stuck with me throughout my life. You know, I'm 42 years old now and I constantly sky watch. And because of that, I've seen 11 UFOs in my lifetime. Um, and just because I say UFO, it doesn't mean that it's extraterrestrial. It's simply an unidentified flying object. And uh, it, so it could be anything. I'm sure there's some misidentifications in there. Uh, but some things that I've seen certainly hovered, certainly didn't make noise, and were certainly low enough that uh, I don't know what else it could be other than something otherworldly. Um, but that was the catalyst, that, that first encounter up in Fort Kent. Okay. Uh, so let's uh, get back to Mike here. We have uh, another question from Peter. However, there's a question that came in from Lauren in Connecticut mm-hmm. uh, from Mike Ben, if you would be so kind as to do the honors. Ookily dookily. Uh, so Lauren writes to us, uh, Hi, Paul and Ben. If it isn't too difficult a question uh, to ask of Mike, I wonder if there was any indication that since he may have been abducted since infancy, uh, perhaps he might be a hybrid. Uh, any Any comment on that, gentlemen? Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I think I can take some of that. Um, okay. <laughs> um, in Mike's and I's conversation, um, and he he had already explained the story when he was three years old with his cousin. And so, you know, as an interviewer, I'm kind of poking around and, and, you know, I'm being careful and I'm being kind, but I'm also trying to get more details from Mike. And I asked him if there's anything that he remembered earlier than that first incident with his cousin and he said you know what there was like a strange incident when i was in my infancy you know i wasn't even a year old and there was this time for a few hours where mike mike's skin had turned completely blue and and mike's uh parents you know young parents at the time you you know they're kind of freaking out they take mike to a doctor and the doctor's like oh he's fine he's just dehydrated and and you know he'll he'll be fine don't worry about it well that was the last thing that they would agree with because they're like our child's blue we don't agree with that assessment he's been drinking his formula fine everything's what you're saying doesn't make sense because we feel like he's hydrated. So they brought him to another doctor, and the other doctor had kind of a similar uh, opinion. And after a few hours, the the color to Mike's skin came back to normal. So while it's an odd story, it doesn't necessarily equate to extraterrestrial. But one thing uh, I wanted to make sure to do in the book was to kind of give both sides of the equation of of alternative explanations for what mike has been going through so the blue inf- uh, the, the the blue skin as an infant there that's actually something that does happen to infants once in a while sometimes it can last for days or weeks or months and sometimes just hours like happened to mike and it has to do typically and it's called blue baby syndrome and it has to do with nitrites that are in the water that their formula is made with. And that type of uh, nitrite that's in the water is typically found in very rural areas, uh, a lot of well water. Well, at the time, Mike's parents were not in a very, like a super rural area. They were in New Hampshire, so that can be argued that it's a bit rural. Uh, but they, they had city water, not well water. 
and I did look up some nitrates uh, reports uh, from the town uh, that he used to live in. The records didn't go back as far as uh, 1979, but what I did find is that nitrates for as long as I could find records, were quite normal uh, within the normal scope that would not cause blue baby syndrome. So on the flip side of that scenario, I also did some research into blue infants or blue uh, aliens or aliens with blue skin to see how much that has been reported. And that certainly has been reported, and there's a lot of uh, uh, reports of children with blue skin that have been reported as hybrid type of alien. So it's kind of interesting, that other question with the hybrid stuff. Uh, but that's basically the scenario on, on infancy and hybrid and, and uh, the blue skin that Mike had for just a little while, uh, you know, before he even turned one. Yeah, okay. Well, Mike, uh, next time we go to breakfast in Portsmouth, uh, no formula for you. So uh, now, now there's uh, Mike. Did you want to respond to Lauren's question? Um, I think Nomar really covered it fairly well. So okay. The, All right. So why, why don't we go on to uh, the second uh, question from Peter? Ah, yes. So Peter continues. Um, secondly, since the beginning of uh, the modern of modern UFO, the modern UFO era in 1947, the three primary questions uh, have remained unanswered, which are, who are they, why, uh, where are they from, and why are they here? Uh, have you learned specific answers to those questions? Uh, for example, I'm tired of hearing that they have different agendas, uh, which tells us absolutely nothing. Uh, I want specific answers if you know any. Um, no, I think I'm in the same boat with everybody else. We'd all like to know exactly what, where, and why. Um, my thoughts are it's it's multi. Uh, I don't even know what the best way. There, there's parts of it that are physical. I think there is a hybrid program going on, but I, I think the bigger part of it is um, it's more about a consciousness thing. I think it's you know, uplifting ourselves, our species, you know, from where we are in this 3D world to, you know, something much bigger, because I think the whole universe is basically about energy and frequency. So that's just my thoughts on it. But no, I don't have an answer. I, you know, that's a million-dollar question. I think we all do. Yeah. Uh, Nomar, any thoughts on the agenda? Uh, well, uh, and Paul, maybe uh, you guys might agree with me on this and and you've been doing uh you've been in the field much longer but the more research that i do the more interviews that i do the more stories that i write the more questions that i have not answers <laughs> yeah okay well there you have it all right um mike are experiences still going on for you um yeah they they've kind of changed in demeanor um, and I don't know if it's, I look at things differently or if it's actually just changed, but it was a couple months ago. Um, so I had gone out camping, which is not really anything new or special for me. Um, and it was a, one of those really like dog days of summer. It was wicked hot, wicked muggy. So I, I was set up sitting in the shade and I was fine. I was content. I had no plans on doing anything but sitting there. Um, and all of a sudden, I just got this, like, urge to climb the mountain that was, uh, I was kind of camping at the foothills of it. And so I packed everything up, threw it in my bag, and 
decided I, all right, I'd hike up the mountain and um, spend the night on the mountaintop. So I climb up there in the heat and I, it wipes me out. And I said, oh, I'm going to sit here for five minutes. And it's not a huge mountain. It's, you know, it's like a 1,100 feet or something. And so I think um, I, I'd laid there for a minute and I was going to just, you know, take five minutes, relax, and then I was going to set up the hammock. And then the next thing I know, I open my eyes and the sun is setting in the sky. Two hours have gone by. Um, and I'm like, all right, that's weird. But I'm not even, like, beginning to process it at this point. I'm just, like, in um, this, not quite panic, but this rush to, all right, now i got to get the hammock up before it gets dark and, you know, get set back, set up for the night. So um running around trying to find the trees and there's no good trees that are like nothing's working out every tree is either too far or too flimsy or um and i notice this flashing coming from my backpack and i'm like what the and so i pull it out into my headlamp and the problem is my headlamp doesn't have a uh, strobe mode on it's got you know four different selections of lights high low some like leds and some red ones or something but it doesn't flash so i pulled out my um phone and i took a quick like 12 second video of it just so i could like complain about being stuck in the dark and now my flashlight's gonna go to crap too um so i pull the batteries out throw them back in it seems to work um i finally get the hammock set up and realize they're just, I mean, like bed of mosquitoes. They are way too thick up here. Um, so I pull it all down. I throw it all in the bag. I, the flashlight worked all the way, got me back to my original campsite, reset up, went to bed, and didn't really think of it other, you know, and then so I told some people and who I met up with the next day and showed them the flashlight and showed them the video. I'm like, you know, look, it shouldn't do that. That's weird, right? And they're like, yeah, that is weird. Um, so I sent it to Nomar because he kind of is now ruined for the rest of his life. Anytime something happens to me, you know, I, I let him know. But um, I let him tell the rest of the story. So Mike gives me the setup that you just heard, and so he sends me the video. And sure enough, his headlamp is flashing, and he took an additional video uh, where he clicked through the different settings of the headlamp, and not one of them flashed. So I then watched the the flashing video again, and in in watching the flashes, to me, it looked like Morse code. And you know, I don't know if my conspiracy mind was going or or what, but it looked like Morse code. So I I wrote down the little dots and dashes that a that appeared to me when I watched the video. I downloaded a Morse code translation sheet. And in doing so, in reading the dots and the dashes, it spelled out the initials MS, which obviously, in my opinion, stands for Mike Stevens. And I told this to Mike, and we both got goosebumps 
this random video he took of this headlamp flashing that doesn't have a flash mode spelled out in Morse code the initials MS and wow. it was the just the biggest you know synchronicity if for you know lack of anything else but it was pretty startling yeah Mike, uh, we're, we're coming down to the wire here, but I wanted you to talk about Granite Sky, <clears throat> Granite Sky Services and how you one can deal with, with one's own issues uh, and, and uh, experiences by helping others deal with theirs. So Granite Sky Services, uh, what, what, what does it do and uh, how can people get in touch with you? Um, so it's basically a support system for anybody who's had any type of extraterrestrial encounter. Um, you know, it doesn't need to be, uh, you know, it's not a competition. Nobody's going in and going, hey, my story's better, my story's better. You know, it's really just about, for a lot of people, just having the opportunity to talk about it and getting the weight off their shoulders is, you know, a, a huge um, burden lifter because, you know, People aren't experiencers just when there's a light in the sky or something's happening. Like, they have to carry this around with them every day and try to manage, you know, regular mundane stuff with all this going on in their, you know, mind as well. So it's it's really about making sure, you know, it's not about solving why it happened or who, who they are or anything like that. It's about getting people to get be able to sleep at night and get through the day um, and... You can find us through the website, uh, org, and we're on Facebook, and you can reach us through there and stuff as well. Excellent. You know, I really have to say that uh, that, that is so well put. Ben and I have always had a pet peeve that the uh, quote-unquote investigators just investigate the phenomena and don't do anything to help the people who are intimate parts of the phenomena and their experience and have to live with it. It's not like we're just lumps and stuff just happens to us. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and I'm glad you brought that up, Paul, because Mike and I are big proponents of normalizing the talk around mental health and what these types of encounters can induce, which are very real symptoms of PTSD and anxiety and depression. And and I struggle with my own anxiety and depression, not caused by extraterrestrial encounters, but the these symptoms and the struggle is real, despite that. And and dealing with the humanity part of it is the most important part of it. You know. Oh, so true so true so uh yeah go ahead ben oh well you know this this entire time you know i feel like this has kind of been a fun uh well maybe not fun but a good a good sort of forum to kind of to kind of tell a story right there's something in in sharing sharing your story like a very personalized event that is therapeutic in a way and with with the writing of this book um you know do do either both of you feel feel as if this has been sort of a, a cathartic experience for you. How, how do you feel now this book is out after, after all this is said is done? How do you feel now? Um, yeah, we're, you know, at some point it started, you know, as a UFO book. I was going to tell him what happened. He was going to write it down, make his, you know, comments. And it wasn't going to be all that different from a lot of the literature that's out there other than it was just my story as opposed to somebody else's and somewhere like in the middle and just the process of everything a mix of us bonding a mix of things going wrong and having to support each other and it really became less about the ufos like that 
keeps the pages turning, but it really became about the human story. And we're getting that back on the feedback, you know, that it's touching people that, you know, and it's helping people. Um, and that's really maybe not what we originally intended to do, but, you know, there was an unseen forced hand that said, no, this is the way you're going to do it. And it felt right now that it's done for all the, you know, struts and struggles we went through to get there. But Yeah. No, I, I hear you. That's how it evolves, and it certainly reads that way. Uh, the book is Granite Skies, A Disconcerted Journey Through the Unknown by uh, Nomar Slevik, who has written some other books, too, Nomar. Uh, I have, yeah. Uh, this is my third uh, book on UFOs. Uh, the first one is UFOs Over Maine, and the second is Otherworldly Encounters. Find both of those wherever books are sold. And uh, if you can't remember the, uh, the the web address, allmylinks.com slash Slevic, uh, just Google Granite Skies, and it'll come right up if you want to check the book out. Great. Well, we have we have links on our, our website as well. Cool. So uh, the book uh, is available on Amazon and in stores? Uh, it's available on Amazon, Kindle, and uh, in a mom-and-pop uh, bookstore in Portland, Maine, and also on my own personal website where people can get a personalized signed copy. Excellent. So what comes next for you fellows? Uh, Mike, wh what's, what's the next step in your work? Are you going to let uh, evolution just carry you along? Um, yeah, I mean, I try to, whenever I try to go left, they push me right, so it just somewhat going with the flow uh this year has obviously been a disaster for everybody so <laughs> it's kind of um but yeah looking forward just to being able to have our groups again with more regularity and you know get back out at the conferences and you know meet meet people who are out looking for help and yeah, just keep doing what i'm doing and you know hope hope it hoping it makes a difference uh, now, do you have to be uh, in your vicinity to uh, take advantage of Granite Sky Services, or, or is there, is, like everybody else, are you doing things by Zoom? Can anybody uh, anybody get in touch and uh, participate? Um, I haven't done any Zoom meetings. I, it loses something in transition, you know, mm. uh, especially with, like, once you get to know people, you know, they can walk in and tell you they're fine, but if I can't read their body language and, you know, this and that and, Subtle little cues, you know, to know they're not right or how to. So I try. And, I haven't done that yet, but I mean, if people live, um, you know, far away, you know, obviously I can communicate by email or whatever to start, and then you know, if we're comfortable, we can move to phone calls and stuff. So we can do that sort of thing. Um, you know, winter coming and the you know lockdowns not looking like we're going to be able to do a lot of group stuff. I might start looking into some of those. Uh, virtual meetings. Okay. All right. Now that's about all the time we have. Uh, thank you so much, Nomar and Mike. Yeah, it's, thank you. It's, you're a great friend. It's always a pleasure. And uh, we'll uh, be in touch and we'll plan some more shows coming up. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. Okay. Very good. So let us get to our announcements here. Uh, I will, <clears throat> Ben, if you want to take this uh, away. I will. In approximately two seconds. Doing the producer. Uh, thing. Well, hey, you know, someone, someone's got someone to do it. Someone has to do it. It's a dirty job and somebody has to do it. Hey, so someone's got to do it. All uh, right. So with any luck, uh, COVID-wise, we plan on uh, speaking at the New England Parafest on April 10th and 11th. That's uh, 2021 in Kittery, Maine. And uh, we will do a live broadcast of this show with a panel of the speakers on Sunday the 11th. Uh, the, and more information will be forthcoming. 
Now we're working on a new book uh, with Sh- with Shane Searway and Alexander Pedagoff, but both both of whom were eyewitnesses to our uh, UFO sighting in uh, May of 2019 in Pennsylvania that we got on uh, on video, uh, and that will be out uh, later next year. Uh, Behind the Paranormal Three. Uneasy Skies, based on our own UFO experiences and those of show guests over the years. It'll be in the same uh, pattern as uh, the uh, Behind the Paranormal 2, uh, which was a uh, sum up of our, not just our experiences with cryptids, but also interviews we've done on the show with some of the greats. Uh, so there we are. And uh, you can check out our current books. Uh, along with those of our co-hosts at our show website that's behindtheparanormal.com where you can also find out more about the show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, uh, whenever we get those, and uh, how to book us for said uh, public appearances, along with some of our shows, uh, 900 plus some of the shows, uh, which are from our 12 plus years on the air uh, including our four and a half years on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. We are hoping to get all those shows back on uh, BehindTheParanormal.com, and uh, we've been moving to a new host and all this kind of stuff and all kinds of security procedures to keep the attacks from stopping, and uh, they should be available there as well, along with the videos, and uh, they're all out there anyway. So uh, <clears throat> check out uh, our uh, past shows, too, most of them anyway, on YouTube, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Paranormal Radio app uh, from TalkStream Live and more. Uh, now, soon we plan to have all those shows uh, back to 2008 uh, uploaded to those apps and hopefully to our own site. Uh, also being redesigned is NewEnglandGhosts.com, which is supposed to be our main site. Mm. And uh, that we I know we've been saying that for years, but it's actually happening. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, links to several charities that we've adopted on the show, including USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Haiti's Orphans, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, and Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, and the Sisterhood of Ground Zero, along with the Milk Fund here in northern Rhode Island. Now, we know the people who run these charities, and you, you can trust that whenever you donate to them, it's going to go to the right place. So what do we have for next week, Ben? Ah, yes. So next week, uh, November 29th. Wow, geez, already powering through November. Uh, yep. well, welcome back the great Anthony Peak. For a look at the hidden universe and uh, where he believes non-human intelligences reside. And it's always a great time to have Anthony Peake on. It's been a while since we've had him, too. Uh, it has, too. And th- this book actually refers to our work uh, in, in some detail, which I find very complimentary. So Yeah, right. Um, and also, before I forget, a very happy Thanksgiving to our American listeners uh, mm. coming up this week. Yes. And uh, let's do the best we can. So. Yeah, right. I mean, it's all we can do at the end of the day. That's true. That's true. So next week, the Hidden Universe, Anthony Peake. Okay, so uh, we leave you today with a soaring thought from the great French Renaissance man, Albert Schweitzer. doesn't sound French, but he lived in Alsace, which is uh, on the border of Germany. So I guess mm, yeah. that German-type name uh, sneak in there. Uh, anyway, uh, sometimes our light goes out, but is blown again into instant flame by an encounter with another human being. And just a word about Schweitzer, in case you don't know who he was. He was a musician, a philosopher, a linguist, a scientist, and uh, he really originated the term Renaissance man, which Mm. obviously, referring to the Renaissance period, uh, he he could do pretty much just about anything. Uh, Jack of all trades and master of all, that kind of thing. Ah, yeah, it's interesting. It just a thought just occurred to me, like how people became Renaissance men back in the day. Hey, he didn't have as many distractions, I guess. Yeah, I think you know that's a good point, Ben. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we're pulled every which way now. Yes. So in any case, uh, I'm Paul Eno, and I'm Ben Eno, and thank you for joining us 
on our great cosmic journey, uh, humanizing the paranormal one show at a time. <laughs> and we'll see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and 